Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, and uh, I'm excited to uh, kick this off with an announcement. We are going to be having our uh, Weekender event. We haven't had it in a while, so we are going to have our next Weekender event on August 16th. I'm sorry, August 18th and 19th. So Friday and Saturday. Now, some of you are in here and you're like, what is the Weekender? That is a great question. So the Weekender, it's not like a camping trip for a weekend. It's not a retreat. It's not anything like that. The Weekender is our way of providing an opportunity to connect in with the church. So it's our way for you to learn about who we are and for us to learn about who you are and to connect and, and, and learn the history and the values and the mission and what we're about and where we are even as a church. So it's how you can uh, learn more about joining officially as a partner at Risen Church. So our word for partner is simply uh, like membership, right? So we just use the word partner. It's, it comes from the Greek word koinonia. Wherever you see the word sharing life in Christ or partnering or participation in Christ in scripture or fellowship even, it's that word. And so the Weekender is simply that place where you can learn about who we are and get to know people and some of the leadership in the church. So what we do is on a Friday evening, um, for about a couple of hours, we will meet at a place called Hangar Law right across from Coastal Edge. There's a rooftop there, and we're going to gather together, and uh, we'll have a, share a meal together and just talk and hang out and uh, get to know each other. And then we'll do it again on Saturday morning. We'll get breakfast together, and we'll talk a little bit more about who the church is and get to know each other. Um, and then that Sunday, we'll have church here. So it'll be great. Uh, that is the Weekender. So uh, if you are not yet a partner, if you are learning more or want to learn more about what that looks like, you can join us. The uh, QR code there at your seats has information for how to sign up for this event. Um, and again, by simply signing up or even coming, that doesn't mean that you're committing to join the church. It's just how you can learn more about it and get to know, okay? Um, get to know who we are and, and vice versa. So um, that's the Weekender. Again, August uh, 18th and 19th. It's crazy that that is only like a month, that we're like a month away from mid-August. That is wild. Um, but it is, uh, it, it, this summer, we have been walking through uh, our Sermon on the Mount series. We've been walking through the greatest sermon ever preached, which is the sermon preached by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we've come to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 24, which we read earlier, where Jesus addresses the topic of money and generosity. However, I want to take this a, a bit of a different approach to this passage, a little bit different than maybe what you've used to, what you're used to when hearing people uh, preach on this passage. Um, whenever we read this passage, I think we tend to use it as an encouragement to be more financially generous. And that's not wrong. That's good. That's exactly what it's talking about. No doubt this is a clear call from Jesus to his people to be financially generous. And so it's not, that's not all that he's talking about here. In fact, I want you to see here that when we really take in the context for this passage, you're going to see that Jesus is speaking to something much deeper than just our wallets. No doubt he does speak to that in this, and we're going to cover that. However, I want you to see that he's staying very much on message with his address to the human condition, the human heart, and the need for total transformation and renewal from the inside out. 
That's the context of this. Jesus simply presents money here as another tool for diagnosing where your heart is. And he uses it to point us to our deep need for transformation, which can only come through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. So not only do we need new hearts, on this side of heaven, our hearts need constant renewal and alignment. It's like tires on a car, right? Like you get your your tires in a car and and after a while, inevitably they start wearing out, right? And then they... Uh, I use this illustration a lot. They get out of alignment, and then um, if you take your hand off the steering wheel, what happens? It'll drift over into a ditch on one side or the other. Like, we want to be moving forward, but inevitably, if you're not intentionally keeping your focus on him, you'll be enticed, pulled, or you'll drift into the ditch because your heart gets out of alignment. In fact, the more your tires are out of alignment on your car, the more you've got to focus to hold that steering wheel. You ever had a car that's just like really jacked up? I used to have an old beater one time. It was an old Jeep. And and that thing, the rotors on it were warped. And it was so out of alignment that if I took my hand off the steering wheel, it would pull me over into this ditch. And then I would find myself reacting to this ditch and just yank it over into this ditch. And then it's like, that's when you really react and it starts like tumbling and flipping over. In reality, what you need to do simply is just take it into the service station and get it checked and realigned, right? That's what we're going to look at here. That's what this is about. So D.A. Carson, he puts it like this. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. He says we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godliness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. And so for the rest of our time, we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 24, and Revelation 3, verse 15 through 22. So that's going to be fun. And so we're going to ask three questions, sort of pulling into the service station of God's word and his Holy Spirit to check our hearts and to realign us from the inside out with who he is, not just yanking back and forth. And that gets exhausting, reacting and and trying to just do, just to go before him to do, to say to him, God, align me, do what only you can do. And we're going to do that by asking three questions. One, what do you treasure above all? Number two, what do you desire above all? Number three, what purpose do you serve above all? So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. This is actually directly out of our passage this morning. Um, Jesus puts it so well that I'm like, there's just no way that I could have improved upon this. This is the main point. So here it is. Matthew 6, verse 21. This is what I want you to get. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So 
Matthew 6, verse 19. Here we go. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, what do you treasure? What do you treasure above all else? In fact, even where is your treasure? Whenever I hear treasure, I don't know about you. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the ocean or whatever it is, man. But whenever I think of treasure, I think about pirates. Like immediately, I'm pirates, buried treasure, right? Anybody else? Like that's what comes to mind. When I was in seminary, I worked at a, a, a kayak guiding company. And um, during the summers, we would do uh, ocean tours, dolphin tours on the ocean, and then uh, flat water tours in First Landing State Park over here. Um, and part of the job, especially during the uh, flat water tours, we would take people on tours through the state park. Um, and uh, part of the job was to tell people about some of the history surrounding the area, like some of the uh, stories and and. Uh, one of my favorite stories is kind of to, you know, get some tips and do all the things, right? But one of the go-to stories that I loved to, to tell um, was about how uh, the state park that is now First Landing State Park was once a destination spot for treasure hunters. Anybody know this? Anybody aware of this? This is a true story. That, that what is now First Landing State Park used to be a destination for treasure hunters. And I'm talking about like, pirate treasure hunters, like buried gold. And not only from just like random pirates, but one specific pirate named Blackbeard. In fact, this area used to be one of his top places where he would frequent. He and his like band of pirates, it sounds so crazy, but it's true that this was a place where he would use these, uh, the dunes in First Landing State Park to, as a vantage point for merchant trading ships, and they would see them, and then they would go out and raid them, and then take the loot back. And um, the rumor is that Edward Teach, or Blackbeard, um, just before he was killed and beheaded by the Royal Navy, he buried his treasure in those very dunes. And so in the following centuries, the treasure hunters, they ripped the area up. He was killed in the 1700s, but they ripped this area up looking for gold, looking for his treasure, until it was then deemed a park in the early 1930s, which meant, of course, no more digging, right? And so apparently, nobody ever found the treasure, right? No, no? you guys don't care? You're like, first service was like, What? But before you, uh, you know, slap on the eye patches and break out your Goonies gear, right? Um, consider the story of Tommy Thompson. It's a true story. It's a deep sea treasure hunter who actually found the wreckage of a ship off the coast of uh, South Carolina, a ship that went down in 1857, and it was in the like the, the 1980s. Um, he went down and patented a submarine and did a whole thing and went down and actually found this ship loaded down with gold. And he apparently um, pulls up some of these gold coins and, and it's millions of dollars worth of coins and he misplaced it, right? It's a true story. Um, he, he was invested in, he had investors had, that had, you know, commissioned him to go get this gold. But then when he gets this gold, he misplaces it, right? And so, uh, he's been in jail now 
uh, because the investors are demanding it and they knew that he brought it up, but then he misplaced it. And so he's been in jail for years now because he refuses to disclose the location. And so Thompson found the gold in his mid thirties and he's now pushing 70 years old, but still says he can't remember where he put it. All right. Now, of course, maybe he just did forget, but the federal judge who sentenced him seems to think that he just completely consumed by the gold himself because at his sentencing, the judge even commented, he creates a patent for a submarine, but he can't remember where he put the loot. So the point is, if your heart is another way of describing the center of a person's being, which that's what a heart, your heart is, then Thompson's heart is effectively buried with that treasure, wherever it is. Even though he's in prison, his heart is where the treasure is, right? You can imagine, like, every day he's in prison, he's dreaming about that gold. He's dreaming about what he's going to do with that gold. He's been consumed by that gold. Everything he does, everything he endures, his tight-lipped, all of the things. Why? His heart is where that treasure is. You ever been with somebody who's got a clear, they're, they're somewhere, they're just distant. They're somewhere else. They're just not really present. Like they're, they're just, their heart is elsewhere. It seems like they're thinking about something or someone else. And effectively, they're just kind of distant. Maybe you struggle with this yourself. Maybe it's hard to leave your work at work when you come home. I think this is a very difficult thing to do, and especially in our society. It seems like maybe you blink and, and your kids grow up, but then when you're with your kids or with your family or with your wife or with your friends even sometimes, you're thinking about work. You're thinking about that deadline. You're thinking about that relationship, that, that, that whatever that struggle is, that thing that you treasure, that you're going, man, if I can just get here, if I can just achieve this goal, if I could just do this, then I'll reap the reward and I'll be able to relax. But in the meantime, that's my treasure and I'm, my heart is there and I'm not even present. You see, just before launching into this portion about treasure, Jesus has actually been talking about receiving your reward from your heavenly father rather than people or even the things of this earth. That's the context in which he launches into treasure. He's been talking about rewards even from your father. And ultimately, our reward is our heavenly father. Our greatest reward is what Christ offers us in himself and his relationship with God the father. And so this is the context. Just before launching into this portion about treasure, he's been talking about receiving a reward from your heavenly father rather than people or things of the earth. And so he says, if you're prone to give or if you're, you're prone to pray or fast only to impress people, then you risk missing out on the true reward of giving prayer and fasting, which is alignment with the heart of God. That's the context of this sermon. He says, in order to combat that then, he tells us to do it in secret places and to cultivate this deep, intimate, joyful relationship with God in the secret. He says that's where real alignment happens, and that's where true transformation takes place, and that's where your reward is with your heavenly Father. But, this is important, he's not saying there that, that uh, you're never to do any good things in front of people, 
right? In fact, just before this, in the Sermon on the Mount, the same sermon that he's been preaching, just before that, he says that he makes it clear that we should not hide our lights under a basket, but to let them shine before men so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. That's in the same sermon. So in the same breath, he's doing this. And so there's this tension that he's telling us to hold and to lean into because he's simply addressing our motives in this. So he's saying, if you're afraid of being seen, then do it out loud. But if you're craving to be seen, then do it in private. So he's helping us. The point in all of it is to check in and align our hearts with God's heart at a heart level. It's easy, though, in this to get paralyzed and to think just externally about these things, right? And, And maybe you think, okay, well, I know that this is a good thing that God has placed in front of me, but I don't want to do it with the wrong motive, so I'm just not going to do it at all. You ever been there? You ever felt like that? But hear this. Not doing the good godly thing that God's placed in front of you because you're afraid your motives aren't 100% intact is actually more selfish than doing it and putting your flesh to death in the process. This is important. Because your motives are never going to be 100% pure on this side of eternity. And God's about changing our hearts. He's about transformation. And so this is all a part of operating as one who's poor in spirit, which is how Jesus kicks off this sermon in the first place. It's recognizing that you're in need of his grace in all that you do and that you haven't gotten it all figured out. Because if you are going to wait until you've got it all figured out and you're in a perfect place before you are able to do the things of the kingdom, you're going to be waiting a long time and and, and your enemy is going to be like, gotcha. And then when you do it, you're going to think, man, I figured this one out. (laughs) I'm so humble. Jesus began his sermon saying that is actually what characterizes those who are blessed, is that they're poor in spirit. And to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. It's those who recognize their spiritual neediness. And so it's in this context of seeking the heart of the Father and aligning our hearts continually, realigning and aligning in this state of just repentance and renewal with him, and then the reward of knowing him more and more and more even in the midst of the pull and tug that this world continually has on us. That's the context in which Jesus challenges us to identify where our treasure actually is. This isn't a one and done, like, okay, yep, well, I was lost, now I'm saved, Jesus, you're my treasure, don't need you anymore, I'll be over here doing whatever I want to do. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, I am your treasure, lean into me, and bring your whole self to me continually. Into my word, into my presence, let my spirit speak to you. And So that's the context here. So who do you treasure most? What do you treasure most? Where is your treasure this morning? Your resources? What consumes your heart and your mind and your soul in this life even today? Like when the busyness of life subsides and in that place of stillness, where does your mind go? What what tugs it? Is it to that relationship? Is it to that project at work? 
Maybe something that's stressing you out, or is it to your heavenly Father who holds all things in his sovereign hands and loves you? Where is your heart this morning? What are you treasuring most? So this isn't just a passage for wealthy investors. (laughs) This is for us all. Now, mind you, again, it also has direct implication on our finances because as the saying goes, where your money flows, your heart goes. That's very true. When Jesus talks about laying up treasures in heaven, he's not talking about burying physical gold in your casket, right? Like that seems crazy, but at the same time for thousands of years, both the ancient Egyptians and the Vikings and many other ancient cultures, they did this, right? I I mean, but Jesus makes it clear that you can't take it with you. In fact, he says, if you try, moth and rust will destroy it. Randy Alcorn actually does one of the best comparisons for this by by comparing it, or, or descriptions for this, by comparing it to living in the South as a Yankee at the end of the Civil War. And he says, he says this, he says, you plan to move back north when the war is over, but while in the South, you've accumulated a lot of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and, and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your shirt, short term needs. He then says, as a Christian, you have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. This is the ultimate insider trading tip. Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns or when you die, whichever comes first. There's nothing wrong with Confederate money as long as you understand its limits. Realizing its value is temporary should radically affect your investment strategy. That makes sense to me. A.W. Tozer put it like this in his uh, book, The Transmutation of Wealth. That's quite a word, isn't it? Transmutation. Tozer puts it like this. He says, as, uh, as base a thing as money often is, it yet can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. That's a powerful statement. So what does it look like to lay up treasures in heaven. Revelation 3, Jesus speaks directly to the local church of Laodicea, which is in modern-day Greece, and he says this in, in Revelation 3, verse 15. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The Laodiceans were bored with the things of God. The hearts just weren't in it. They they, they treasure the things of the world, not the things of the kingdom. They're consumed by worldly cares, pursuing and building their own kingdoms, their own security, always desiring what's most comfortable. But 
They've put the things that God cares about most on the back burner, and they're kind of apathetic towards it even. Things like prayer and and worship and the Great Commission. Things like making disciples who make disciples, planting churches that plant churches, reaching the lost for the kingdom of heaven to take the treasure that you have in Christ and bring people to know it and to see him, to, to, to sell all that you have because you've discovered a treasure in a field and you're like, nothing compares to this treasure or this pearl. But the Laodiceans, they're like, eh. It's not really on their radar. I mean, it's good, right? But they don't need anything. This is the thing about catching a a revelation of what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. When you get a revelation of the mission and priority of God's kingdom coming to earth, I'm going to tell you something. You catch his heart and what could be, then, (laughs) I mean, really catch it. It will ignite a holy ambition in you that will leave you both utterly satisfied in his love and grace and completely consumed by bringing it to bear on the lives of everyone around you. And when you do, you will become extremely needy because you can't do it yourself. The whole like, I, I, I need nothing thing. <laughs> we need a lot. And yet, we have access to it all in Christ. We have it all. And he's saying, come to me and ask me. Align your heart with me. This is all relational. It's about reliance on him. Like the most sobering thing to me about the Laodicean church here is that because because they're so rich in this world, they don't realize that they're so poor in light of eternity and that which matters most to the heart of God. Why? Because they haven't let the spirit of God check their heart. They haven't pulled into that heart service station with his spirit and God's word to get that alignment with their heart to the Father, which is what we're doing this morning. That's what this is about. So Revelation 3, verse 18, he says this, Jesus, God Almighty, Son of God, counsels us. So when you get counsel from Jesus Christ, probably take it. He says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. So another way of saying this could be lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Okay, so that's, how do we do that? What does that look like? What's he talking about? What does this mean? Well, again, it starts with salvation. He he himself is the ultimate treasure, amen? And so, It starts with salvation. It starts by receiving the ultimate treasure from God, which is relationship with Jesus Christ or or relationship with the Father brought in by Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is what this is all about. The gospel itself, that God became a man. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve to die. He conquered sin and death, the barrier of intimate relationship sonship with the Father. He conquered that. He split the veil that separates us. He rolled the stone away 
And he paved the way through the resurrection to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, not just then. It begins now because he indwells us now with his very spirit. And he changes us from the inside out. And he gives us new hearts, new affections, and new desires, new purpose, a new treasure. Now back to. Revelation 3, verse 18, okay? So he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So, so he takes away your shame. And the way that he takes your shame away is by clothing us in his purity. This is what salvation brings. In another place, Revelation refers to those who have been saved and redeemed and have been presented as in pure white robes because they've been washed in the blood of the lamb. And when you wash something in blood, it normally comes out red, right? But the idea there is that you, your sins have been washed. Your sins that are as red as scarlet have been washed, and now they're white as snow. And so your sins are as far as the east is from the west. And so it's a spiritual metaphor for understanding what Jesus has done and that all of the shame that our sin demands and deserves has been washed by the blood of Christ, his sacrifice, his resurrection. This is what's available to us in Christ. And so there's salvation. And so, but that's not all we get in this exchange. He also says, and this is where I want to key in, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. That sounds a little familiar. So see, salve was like an oil, right? So which throughout scriptures, especially in Revelation, it represents the Holy Spirit. And so when you've been cleansed by the blood, you're also given the Holy Spirit himself who gives us healthy, good eyes. Eyes that view the world in light of the gospel. A new world view. Eyes that view the world through the lens of Jesus and his goodness and truth and grace. Healthy eyes, new eyes, new desires. Back to Matthew 6 now, right? Again, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So first question, what do you treasure above all? Second question is, what do you desire above all? So, so while the first question has to do with your heart, the second question has to do with your eyes. The desire of the eyes is a powerful thing, right? And it has major implications on you, but it also has major implications on those around you. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus speaks of the healthy eye and the bad eye, or literally the evil eye, okay? And so this is important to understand this phrase in the context of the ancient Near East because the phrase he uses here is actually an ancient idiom that the original people listening to this sermon would have picked up on. Okay, so when he says evil eye, it's actually an idiom that has a deeper meaning to uh, the people in that time period that I want you to pick up on, okay? So again, remember an idiom is like a phrase that uh, we only catch if we're familiar with the context and the culture. Like, so if I were to say, um, you know what, I'm gonna throw in the towel right now, that was a boxing idiom that means I'm surrendering, I'm giving up. It doesn't mean I need to dry off, right? 
That's not what he's saying. So like, uh, or a Southern idiom might be that you're too big for your britches. Like if you hear that, that means you're about to get spanked. It doesn't mean you need new <laughs> pants, right? You might get spanked so hard you need new pants. But, um, or as my grandma used to say, give me some sugar, honey, right? Doesn't mean she needs more baking ingredients. It means she wants a kiss, right? <laughs> These are idioms. And so there's an ancient idiom here in this text that also uh, has a deeper meaning and Jesus is playing on it, Okay. Notice that he talks about the eye as something that gives off light. That's interesting. So we, in our modern scientific world, we think of the eye as something that's receiving light in. But he's speaking about it spiritually here. So he's speaking about the eye as something that's giving things off. He calls it the eye. He says the eye is like the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, if your eye is healthy, it's a reflection of what's in you. But if your eye is bad or evil, if you have an evil eye, it's a reflection that your whole body is full of darkness. Now, I'd always, again, I've read this, man, for so long I've read this to be about what you're taking in, what you're focusing on, but the more I've learned about the ancient context of this passage, the more I realize that Jesus is actually talking more about what's, not, not, what's in, not what's outside of us, but what's inside of us. He's talking about what's inside of you, not necessarily what's outside of you in the world. In other words, he's saying that what's in you isn't a symptom of what you focus on, but what you focus on and even the looks that you give to the world is a symptom of what's already in you. The spiritual light or spiritual darkness that emanates from you is a symptom of what's going on inside of you. Again, he's calling us to check ourselves. The legalist would say, well, I just need to stop looking at that and look elsewhere. I need to just hold tighter to the steering wheel. And stay farther away from that ditch as I run into this ditch. Jesus says, align your heart. He's providing us an opportunity to diagnose our own hearts here and align or realign with the heart of God. And yes, it should cause you to be poor in spirit and recognize your need for him. Because to those who are poor in spirit, they're blessed. For to you, the kingdom of heaven belongs. And so, because Scripture interprets Scripture, amen, that's how if we don't understand, we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture, look at the way that Scripture talks about the good and the evil eye. Proverbs 23, verse 6, it says this, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. The word there for stingy is literally that idiom whose eye is evil. Okay? So do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, um, or whose eye is evil. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Proverbs 28, verse 22. Again, there's that word, stingy. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Again, literally, a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Deuteronomy 15.9, take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, which was when all debts were canceled, it was the year of Jubilee. Some of y'all are like, America needs a year of Jubilee right now. The others of you are like, you communist. Um, <laughs> 
But look at this. So it says, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly, which means your eye be evil on your poor brother. And you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. Deuteronomy 28, 54. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge or do evil with his eye begrudging food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left. So again, it's an idiom. Even the tender, he's saying even the tender and most refined among you, the people that you would think would be the last one to do this, will do it because they have an evil eye. And so again, the evil eye is an idiom here that means someone is stingy, begrudging, hostile, contemptuous in a way that reflects their heart and affects others negatively. That's the idea here. But the scriptures also speak of the good eye or the healthy eye as generous, compassionate, even helpful, shining a light, not darkness. Proverbs 22 verse 9 says, whoever has a bountiful or literally good eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. Job 16.9 even speaks of this in a way that's almost like causing violence with our eyes. Job 16.9 says, He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. You ever done that? You ever sharpened your eyes at your adversary or your enemy? Like, was it cut, those cutting eyes? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Given that look, that side eye. Pagan cultures even, this, this has had such an effect throughout societies all over the world that pagan cultures even make this idea of the evil eye into a kind of sorcery or witchcraft where people can become bewitched and cast a curse through a look or a glance, an evil eye, it is what they call it. Maybe you've even seen these talismans or, or charms that people use to deflect the hex of the evil eye on their lives. It's like a hand with an eye in it. You ever seen that thing? They wear them like necklaces and things of that nature. Um, Christians, if you're filled with the Spirit, we don't trust in necklaces and charms. We trust in the Lord, amen? He is our protection. He is our Savior and, and the one in whom we find rest, okay? You don't need a necklace, but you do need Jesus, okay? And, so, and also, in light of that, I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't say, because it flips it upside down from the way the world operates. Jesus does not say here, watch out for others putting the evil eye on you. That's not what he says. In fact, he says the exact opposite. And he tells you to watch out for the way your eye gazes on others. Jesus contrasts the evil eye here with a stingy, envious, hostile, or judgmental eye with the healthy, generous, joyful eye that rejoices with those who rejoice and shines light. No, no, we're not getting into like hexes and magic. I'm not saying it's like a magical incantation that comes out, and I don't think Scripture's saying that either, but it does have an effect on people. 
and, and living in this world at any time, you know that it does. And so this is the power of this. Dr. Michael Heiser shed some profound light on the context of the society that Jesus was actually speaking to um, in this passage, which I think also sheds a lot of light on our own society. Okay, so go with me here, all right? Um, lean in. This is what he says. He talks about how the idea of the evil eye actually comes from high honor, shame, or pride shame systems that operate from this idea of the limited good. I found this profound, okay? So, so bear with me here. He says that these cultures can trace their roots to the ancient Mediterranean cultures that Jesus would have actually been speaking to here. And he quotes from an article from a guy named Fincy that read saying, the evil eye grows out of the core Mediterranean values of honor and shame and something called the limited good. Honor is the greatest value in this society and the worst horror is shame. Sound familiar? Likewise, in a peasant culture, there is a sense of limited good. Food is limited. Space is limited. Even honor is limited. Thus, if someone has too much wealth, too much food, or too much honor, then he's taking away from you. There's a reason why socialism is born out of, con uh, or born out of countries and societies that are high in honor-shame culture. So this causes envy, and envy leads to the evil eye, the putting of a curse or a spell on the one who has too much or flaunts too much of what he has. It says, today, Mediterranean people do not, for example, like for their people to be praised too much in public as beautiful or intelligent because that might provoke the evil eye from someone else and could cause a curse to be put on their children. Not everyone casts the evil eye on others. Only envious people would do that. But there are plenty of envious people to go around in any culture. Jesus, his saying, now takes on a different meaning. It's not the light coming into the eye that's the issue, but what goes out from it. The hapless person, the good person, the sound person, the shalom person is a person with no double motives, no envy lurks in the shadows. What appears to be actually is. This person's gaze causes genuine good to others. However, the one with the evil eye causes evil. This one is envious of another's success or possessions or family and quietly or audibly casts a spell on him or her. This is a dangerous person whose whole body is in darkness or evil. Now again, we're not getting caught up in incantations and magic spells here. We're talking about what's in our hearts. That's how Jesus addresses this stuff, okay? So he, he goes on and he talks about um, another article that gets into talking about the limited good and where people believe the good things of life exist in short supply or one person's prosperity meant another person's poverty and one person's honor meant another person's dishonor and he speaks of life as like a pie and there's only so many slices and so it creates this culture of envy. And honor, high honor, but also envious of that honor because they're like, you took my honor, there's not much left. So the evil eye is this eye that looks upon others with contempt, envy, jealousy, or offense. It's the eye that desires destruction upon another. And Jesus is saying, when that's what's in your eye, it's a reflection of what's in your heart. There's a scarcity idea there. But Jesus comes in and he totally upends this thing. He upends the honor-shame culture and the whole system, the whole concept of limited good by connecting our hearts with the heart of our heavenly Father. He provides a new heart he sourced in the secure love of God Almighty where there is no limit to his goodness and to his provision. 
There's no limit to his supply. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Your money ain't going to run out because it's connected to him. And it's not about your money anyway. That's what is, where's your treasure? What's your true treasure? That's the point. The Christian then has no business playing these games of pride and shame. Because there's no scarcity or limit when your treasure is in heaven. We can be secure in the Father's love and his goodness and our whole being be full of light from the very Spirit of God within us. That means, now here's where it gets practical. All of that means you can fully mourn with those who mourn without slipping into depression and despair. That means you can weep with those who weep without losing sight of your hope. You know what else it means? You can rejoice with those who rejoice without being envious. And I think in our society that's so bound up by pride and shame that we often think, well, the hard one is to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, but rejoice when others are rejoicing. That's easy, is it? Is it? Or when you're like Instagram, you see them on vacation, you're like, they're on another vacation? Got another raise? Sometimes it's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than we want to let on. And what does it do? It binds you. Why? It's a symptom of what's in here. It's not even about what's out there. It's what's in here. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you need a heart check. He's saying be secure in heaven. And when our treasure is secure in heaven, we can be grateful for the success of others without envy. You can give generously and even live sacrificially without bitterness or resentment. You can even, and this was a radical statement to this kind of culture, you can outdo one another in showing honor, according to Hebrews, because there's no limit to it. Why? Because it's ultimately about his honor. Like this is, there's no limit in Christ. Now all of that is all a lot easier said than done, right? I mean, this is why we're called to set our faces upon the gaze of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about this too. So I've given you a little paradigm, a little worldview shift to understand what scriptures mean. Like this is what it means to repent, to set our faces upon the gaze of Jesus Christ. To repent literally means, it's Greek for metanoia. Say metanoia. It literally means to change your worldview, to reset your gaze, to behold Jesus. And in Revelation, Jesus is depicted as having eyes like flaming torches. Remember, they didn't have like flashlights or, or strobe lights or, or floodlights back then. They had torches. That's what gave off light. And so now at first, when I, when I, you get the image of Jesus in Revelation and he's got eyes of flaming torches, you're like, man, that's kind of petrifying, right? When you realize the concept here of eyes being like lamps that give off light of generous grace and delight and truth, he is the epitome of the one who, whose eyes shine forth the light of generosity and goodness and compassion and grace. And so when you realize that that's the kind of light that's emanating from the eyes of Christ, it draws us to then say, I want to bask in his gaze. To delight in his delight. 
That's what we have. This is an invitation to live and love as he does, to be the light of the world and let his spirit be the light in our eyes expressed to a dark world, not cold contempt or insecurity, but in confident humility, uncompromising truth and love. And it's only possible when we're transfixed on the gaze of Jesus and beholding Jesus. And in this world, when we find ourselves getting tugged by the world and we find ourselves in places of envy or contempt or offense or, or, or hostility and we're cutting people with our eyes and we're cutting people with our, even our words, then you, you find yourself, these, this, this stuff, this bitterness creeps up in you. The religious answer is to just shove it back down and act right and hope nobody saw you. But the Christian answer is to actually repent, to metanoia. Jesus is saying, come to me, behold me, buy gold from me, refined by fire. Let me align your heart with me. Exchange all of that mess for the gold that's refined by fire. Lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. When we treasure the things of this world above all and the desire of our eyes is set on the earthly kingdoms, people's approval, earthly status, temporary comforts, greed, contempt, offense, and stinginess and anxiety, these, all this stuff is going to plague your life. And it's all symptoms, not of what's out there, but what's in here. And when that happens, Jesus has come to me. Trade it all in. Trade in your earthly treasures for eternal gold, white robes, and salve for your eyes. Because it's not a coincidence that this is all in the same context of Christ's message on forgiveness. It's in the same sermon. It's like the same breath. He speaks on forgiveness. He comes into this. This changes the way we operate because it ultimately changes the heart of our operation. But again, this is a process. Again, it's designed for you to feel poor in spirit right now. It's not designed to shame you. That's, again, part of the worldly system. This is designed for you to come to him, to behold him, to recognize our hearts are prone to fall out of alignment, which is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, continually transformed by the renewal of your mind, metanoia. But when we intentionally let him in, when we realign, when we exchange those things for that gold refined by fire, it not only lays up treasure for us in heaven, it also delivers us from that which would ensnare us here on earth. Matthew 6, verse 24, final verse here. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I, I, this, you guys, if you've been here for a while, you know that uh, I've probably mentioned Tim Keller every sermon since he passed to go be with Jesus. But Pastor Tim Keller pastored in New York City, one of the largest churches in New York City for 40 years at the financial epicenter of America and likely the world. And recently I heard that Tim Keller said that he never once had in 40 years of ministering in New York City, he never once had anyone tell him they struggled with the idol of money. Remember, an idol is something you want more than you want God. So nobody in New York struggled with the 
idol of money over 40 years. That's how strong and deceptive this grip is. And in this world, where if you make over $30,000 in total household income, the stats say that you are in the top 1% of the world's richest people. Did you know that? That's a radical stat. If you make over $30,000 in total household income, you're in the top 1% of the world's richest people. Many believe that's because God has blessed our society because they look at our financial prosperity and somehow they equate that with our spiritual state or maturity as a society. But I, 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 God bless America. I, I'm so thankful for this nation. And yet circumstances, whether they are financial or not, do not dictate God's approval of us in this life. Hear this, this doesn't mean that God doesn't bless us and we should be so thankful for that. But when you play that game, you play right into the enemy's hand. Like don't be deceived. Neither poverty nor prosperity is the necessary indication of God's delight in you in this life. Nor is it a symptom of your spiritual maturity. Like the spiritual mature, they're not the ones that are in poverty. The spiritually blessed are not the ones that are just rich. That's not how this works. And if you start playing that game, you're going to fall into the Laodicean trap, which is what the, the, the people that Jesus is writing that letter to in Revelation. They believed they were rich and had no real need of God, but in truth, they were wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind, he says. This is not a guilt trip, guys. It's just an eye-opener to see how deceptive the love of money can be. And when we chase the things of this world, it takes our eyes off the things that are the closest things to God's heart. We become annoyed by the things even that, that really make a difference eternally. Because we're so focused on building temporary kingdoms, we tend to lose sight of the heart of our everlasting king. So many, money, hear this again, money is not bad in itself. Money is not bad, amen? 1 Timothy 6 says that it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evils. Not money itself. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Or pains. Pangs and pains, the same thing. A friend of mine refers to money um, as an amplifier. He calls it an amplifier of what's already in you. And I think it's very true. Like the more you acquire, the more apparent what you treasure will become. Because money's not bad. It's just a tool to be used to build. The question really is, whose kingdom are you building? So, number one, what do you treasure above all? Number two, what do you desire above all? And then finally, number three, what purpose do you serve above all? So let's finish that last part of Revelation 3, verse 19. Or the last part of, it'll be through verse 22. So verse 19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Now, that word discipline doesn't mean punish. It means discipline, which means correct and realign, like a good father disciplines his son and loves him. So, so then he says, be zealous and repent. That's Noya. So I love that he says zealous here, like no more apathy or neglect of the love of God. Refocus your gaze upon the majesty and goodness of who he is. Treasure him, run to him, be loved by him, press into him. Lay up treasures for yourself. This is how you buy gold. Verse 20, behold. When he says behold also, you know what you should do? Behold. <laughs> That's right. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Why would you not open the door? See if you're apathetic. Open the door. You think you're satisfied. He is the all-satisfying all king, right? He is the one. This is why be zealous. Like you're missing out. This is who I am. This is what it looks like to buy gold. It looks like spending time with him, prioritizing time in prayer and in his word and worship. Even if you think it's boring at first, being zealous and letting him renew your mind, it means communing with him and even each other. Verse 21, he makes it clear. It's not necessarily easy. But the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus promises deep fellowship and even honor in the age to come, but it's an honor that we're likely not prepared for, right? And so this life is a life of kind of like training and preparation on a deep spiritual level. So he's calling us to greatness even, but not in the way this world defines greatness. It's a different kind of thing altogether. In fact, the word for conquer here is the word Nike. It's a Greek word Nike. It means victory. The victor in Christ, right? The victor in Christ. We trade in our status as victims for a status of victory. In Christ, we're given these eyes to see things differently because we have a treasure that transcends this world. It's a totally different thing. And then we're able to buy gold refined by fire every day by giving generously and even joyfully of our time, our talent, our earthly treasures, choosing forgiveness, the way of love, to go low and serving Jesus and each other. When we feel it or when we don't, we're exchanging all of this stuff for his glory, not our own, but for his kingdom, not our own. And there's a joy that's unconquerable that's given to us even now when we do this. In fact, 2 Timothy 4, last, we're, we're wrapping it up here. The Apostle Paul is at the end of his life. He's been beaten, whipped, tortured. He's now imprisoned, awaiting execution. And by all accounts, this man has been utterly defeated by the way the world perceives him. And he writes this letter to Timothy. And he says this, first, uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So these are, these are not the words of a victim. He hasn't been taken out by discouragement or frustration or compromise. He's not like, I've been dealt a bad hand. He doesn't have a bad attitude. It's not, it's not what's going on here. He didn't consider himself perfect, of course, by any means. In fact, again, he says often, I, he says, I have not arrived, but his life was a life that pressed in for the glory of God and pressed into the grace of God. His life was one that bought gold from Jesus and laid up treasures in heaven. And there's this unconquerable joy that he expresses in that letter. And honestly, guys, I want that. That's what I want. I want more of that, even myself. And I want it for you. As Maximus said in the movie Gladiator, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. He was right. He was right. He got a lot of other things wrong, but he was right on that one. 
Jesus gives us direct counsel, both in Matthew 6 and in Revelation 3, of how to get truly rich. So let's lay aside every compromise and look to Jesus. This isn't about comparing yourself to others. This is about looking to Jesus, treasuring him and his ways above all else, and to know him more, to treasure him more and more at a heart level. Final verse, Revelation 3, verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.